You are listening to Neurosalience, the OHBM podcast. I'm your host, Peter Banatini, and today we'll be having a discussion with Dr. Danielle Bassett. Dr. Bassett has taken neuroimaging by storm with her insight, rigor, and creativity towards developing and applying models, specifically network models, uh, to understand the brain. She's currently the Peter Skirkinich Professor at the University of Pennsylvania uh, in the Department of Bioengineering with a secondary appointment in the Departments of Physics and Astronomy, Electrical and Systems Engineering, Neurology and Psychiatry. Dr. Bassett received her BS in 2004 in Physics from Penn State University. She received her PhD in Physics in 2009 uh, from the University of Cambridge, uh, UK as, as a Churchill Scholar and also an NIH uh, uh, Health Sciences Scholar. Following a postdoctoral position at UC Santa Barbara, she was junior research fellow at the SAGE Center for the Study of Mind. In 2013, she joined the University of Pennsylvania as an assistant professor, and in, 2000, in 2019 was promoted to full professor. She is uh, founding director of the Penn Network Visualization Program, a, co a combined undergraduate art internship, and a K-12 out outreach program bridging network science and visual arts. She's received multiple prestigious awards, uh, which I won't uh, list all of them here, uh, uh, including the, of note, the MacArthur Fellow Genius Grant. She was one of the youngest, if not the youngest, to receive that uh, in 2014, and the LaGrange Prize in Complex System Science in 2017, the Erdos Renyi Prize in Network Science in 2018, and most recently, she's the recipient of the uh, 2020 OHPM Early Career Investigator Award. Since her relatively uh, uh, recent start, just over a decade ago, she's been on a tear in recent years, co-authoring uh, well over 50 papers a year. Uh, she's published more than 300 peer review publications that have uh, rigorously and creatively forged the intersection of network science uh, with brain science, being both informal, informative and also deeply insightful. Uh, what I find most compelling about her work is not just the, the technical rigor and creativity uh, or even the productivity, uh, but, the, but the boldness uh, that comes through as she grapples with merging messy biology with powerful mathematical constructs. And uh, today we'll not only be discussing Dr. Bassett and her work, uh, but we'll spend the second half of this podcast discussing another issue that she's passionate about, uh, and that of uh, bias in science and potential solutions to this problem. So Danny, welcome. And uh, let's just begin with you. Um, uh, just to start out, uh, so what, how did you start? What is, what were your interests and motivations that led you to where you are now? Yeah, well, first, thank you so much for having me um, on this podcast. Um, so I'm going to answer that question by saying that I love physics, which might seem like a really strange answer to the question of where I am right now. Um, but I want to explain why I answer it in that way. So I've always loved mathematics since I was a kid. It's so clean, it's so beautiful, it's so internally consistent, unlike life. Um, it's so kind of surprising and unsurprising at the same time. But when I took my first physics class, I was spellbound. And that's because this wasn't just mathematics. This was mathematics as a language to explain the world around us. And that world, which had before kind of seemed very, you know, messy and, and unexplainable was in fact super, super simple in the eyes of physics. And that juxtaposition between the apparent complexity of the world and the actual simplicity 
um, once you add math in, made my mind feel like it was like almost hurting with happiness. Um, and that's exactly, I think, the fascination that continues to motivate my work now. So I want to find the true simplicity in the apparent complexity. And I typically try to do so by uh, using mathematical models in complex systems, could be biological systems, which is where most of my work is, or in physical systems. And obviously, as you know, in the context of biological systems, I'm typically working in the scale of the um, human brain, both to understand healthy cognition and to understand its alterations in psychiatric disorders um, or neurological disease. Yeah. Okay. Well, thanks. Thanks. Yeah. That. that uh, so yeah. So it does seem that that right. I mean, physics uh, has a head start on, and so so understanding physics, the physical world through 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 mathematics, has a little bit of a head start in biology. So. Um, it seems that you know we're still very much in the stage of sort of cataloging and measuring, and and yeah, we're trying to sort of impose models such that we can simplify uh, principles uh, of of what's going on in these. Uh, I wouldn't say more complex, but more uh, more difficult to derive the, what the principles are of these systems of biologic systems of our of our brain. Um, so uh, so okay so. Um, uh, just to and just looking at your productivity and looking at uh, where you've gotten right now, um, uh, you have you know we're going to be talking about networks. You have an incredible network uh, of workers, of, of people, of collaborators, uh, and how how have you established that? Because I think that's actually something that's often overlooked in science is that, is how much people, how much it, your success sort of depends in some sense on on creating these productive networks. Mm, yeah, yeah, definitely. I think that um, I'm not entirely sure that I have purposefully, you know, tried to establish that sort of network. I think that it may have have happened just sort of naturally. Um, and I think that that's that's just by by seeking out people with whom I share interests um, and being really open to different perspectives and valuing a lot of different perspectives to guide the kinds of questions that I want to ask. And I would definitely recognize that the people who I've had the chance to work with both in my own lab and in other labs have really made possible everything that we've done. So I just, I feel incredibly lucky to know each of them. I'm lucky to know the students, um, to spend a little bit of time in this short life with them before they move on to their next positions. Um, but also my collaborators who I feel like are, I, I value that that space that we've all created. That's a, a generous space where we share ideas, we share thoughts, we laugh. Um, we um, try to dig more deeply into finding more satisfying explanations for things. Um, and I just feel lucky that I've been able to find that and that many people have generously given their time and their ideas um, so that we could together make something new. Okay. Yeah, no, it does. It definitely does seem that you, and, and I think also it has a lot to do maybe with the, with the subject matter of what you do. You sort of integrate across uh, people making measurements, uh, you know, the long history and large field of, uh, of mathematics and, 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 and trying to sort of, you know, you tap into this vein of, 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 of a lot of potential. And I think a lot of people recognize that. Um, so, so as far as, uh, so just before we get into uh, a little bit more of the details of work, I've, you know, I've, I've you know, I've spent the last couple of uh, weeks and also 
in the past as well, you know, listening to your, you have some talks on YouTube and whatever. And I always, I, I'm always struck and I'm always uh, 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 kind of delighted with the fact that you, you put in sort of classic literature quotes uh, a, a lot. And uh, you must have, there must be some story there in some sense. Uh, you must have a, a, a large interest in that. Yes, yes. I absolutely love to, to read classic literature. It's one of my favorite things to do. Um, I also uh, teach a course on curiosity that's with a classicist. So Peter Strzok here at Penn is a classicist. And so I love reading alongside the students in those courses just to try to understand, you know, how the thinkers from antiquity thought about how it is that humans know. How do we know things? Um, and what is it that we really know? Um, so I think that's been a lot of fun, I guess, as a motivation to continue stretching my reading interests way, way back in the history um, to think about the similarities and differences between how ancient people and modern people think about how we think. Um, and, but um, re writing, or sorry, reading is not the, maybe the only thing that I really love. I also love writing. And so when I come across something that's written really beautifully, I and become fascinated with it because I wish I, I wish I had written it. Um, so I'm currently writing a book, well, I'm revising, it's all written, uh, but it's just, we're just revising it now with my twin, um, Perry Zern, who's a philosopher and a professor of philosophy. And it's called Curious Minds. It's under contract with MIT Press. And in it, what we do is that we draw on our, our very different fields. So me in kind of neuroscience and complex systems and physics and him in literature and philosophy. And together we try to say, let's think about curiosity a little bit differently. Let's think about it not necessarily as acquiring knowledge. So where a certain person seeks a piece of information or tries to understand X or find out X or better cognize X, but as something that is inherently connectional. So it's where we try to make connections between different pieces of information. We try to follow the traces or find the links or follow the threads, right? Um, so it proposes an alternative perspective on curiosity that really is relational rather than acquisitional. Um, so, and in the process of writing that, you know, we're following these ideas through philosophy and science and then up into modern times and their um, utility for education, for society, for so social justice. Um, so in building that work, uh, I've had a lot of fun um, reading much more broadly than I did as a undergrad. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, uh, that's great. No, actually, I think it's interesting because all these, uh, you know, thoughts and, 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 and questions, you know, people are grappling at are sort of the same types of questions. It's just that we have different tools now and we're and it's worthwhile to think about the quality of their questions in that regard. And I'm looking forward to reading that book. Um, I actually just came across a couple of weeks ago, some discussion on uh, uh, artificial intelligence. And, and uh, there was a big question that came up as how do you build curiosity into an AI system mm -hmm. as well? And, and so it, it, people are realizing that it's sort of a fundamental thing yes. uh, in that regard. Absolutely. So, yeah. so, so what you're doing, as we already talked about, um, it is something I think the field very much needs and feels a, a deep need for uh, that of sort of modeling uh, biologic systems and sort of deriving principles uh, and therefore deeper understanding about the measurements. But so what has been most challenging about, about that line of work that you're doing? Uh, and so like, and what's the nature of the challenge? Hmm. Or what strategies do you use when attempting uh, sort of to come up with, you know, when you're thinking about how to go about something, is it sort of like a, 
Uh, do you think of the model first or do you think of the system first or do you somehow, how do you sort of go about that problem and what's most challenging about that? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, I think that often, so you have to walk the line. The most challenging part is walking the line between um, complete uh, accuracy and biological realism and um, an efficient model, right? Um, I think it was, um, there's a famous uh, article, now I'm forgetting the authors, who suggested that, you know, the best, the most efficient, best model of a cat is another cat and preferably the same cat. Um, and uh, that's not the kind of, but did we gain any information? Do we learn what a cat is just by seeing another cat? Not really. Um, so that motivates digging a little bit deeper, being more reductionist, picking out the, what is what are the pieces of a cat and how do they connect with one another? But on the other side, let's pretend that we actually do go down to, you know, cellular structure of a cat or the DNA of a cat or the, the finest level of biological realism. Well, then we follow this path of reductionism into the teeniest pieces and we're limited there because from the pieces, we don't necessarily have the blueprint for creating the bigger object, the actual cat itself. Um, and I think it was Phil Anderson in his, uh, he wrote a paper in 1972 in Science. Um, it's titled More is Different. And he says the fallacy um, of thinking in a reductionistic way, and I'm paraphrasing him, is that re the reductionist hypothesis does not by any means imply a constructivistic one. So you can't necessarily construct from the pieces the full thing if you only have pieces. You need the map, you need how they go together and why they go together and what they do when they come together. And so I think that network science sits in a really nice middle place between these two ends of the spectrum because it is it is constructionist. It is let's put the pieces together, at least try to put the pieces together and say, you know, by putting the pieces together, can we learn a little bit more? And I think it's in conversation with both ends. What are the pieces we should be using? And then once you put them together, did we actually learn something about the true animal? Um, so it, it's in the middle, but but figuring out you know, exactly precisely which spot in the middle to, to straddle is, is maybe the most challenging part. Huh. All right, all right. Yeah, no, actually, um, I mean, it, as, you're, as you're talking, it reminded me of the, of, you know, people try to, you know, the, 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 the problem of like overfitting, uh, for instance, data, so where you don't, where you overfit, but you fit, you, you find accuracy for the wrong reason, but the idea of being reductionistic and, and trying to, uh, yeah, minimize the, um, uh, the number of variables to sort of, you know, sort of maximize the principles that, that sort of uh, hold them together in that regard. Um, yeah, so what is, so, so along those lines, um, it, it very much depends upon what we can measure in, in, in the brain. And, uh, and I know that uh, you've very much used uh, diffusion tensor imaging, you've used functional connectivity, uh, sort of you're working on that scale um, and we'll talk a little bit more about scale in a few minutes, but, um, but what generally, uh, what can't we measure now that uh, you would like to be able to measure that would substantially impact your, your modeling work? I mean, is there something, do you feel like you're always like at the surface and you can't quite get at what's going on or you're trying to infer it? But, so yeah. what, what do you think is yeah. critical? In terms of measurements, 
um, there, there's one thing I would really love in terms of measurement, and then there are other things I would love in terms of theory. Um, but in terms of measurement, I think what I wish we had access to right now was a measurement of flow along of information of, of electrical current along white matter tracks. So along the big structural um, highways of the brain that connect two different pieces. I think if, if we had a way to image that uh, non-invasively, it would make a huge difference in the kinds of models we can build and how much we can validate the current models we have. Okay, so right now the assumptions are right. The the, the thicker the white matter track, the you know the, the closer the nodes are 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 sort of interacting in some sense, or the the more the yep. and that's sort of a big assumption in some sense. Um, and the yep. directionality, of course, is is a big factor uh, right. yes. as well. Um, yeah. That's interesting. Okay, and and but but then also uh, it seems that you know I'm always struck with the th and also of course you you know trying to get inhibitory or excitatory interactions as well. Which I mean, it, I always I'm always uh, whenever I read about these models, I'm always thinking, okay, so you know at at the level of neurons, is is is, is that does that make a difference? Like if you're trying to uh, you know derive principles of brain function. Um, some people, obviously, a lot of people who are measuring neurons think, oh, this is the, this is a scale that actually matters. If we understand the neurons, we understand the brain. Um, whereas, obviously, people, you know, measuring behavior will look at the brain as a black box, potentially. So it's everything in between. Mm -hmm. and, and at what level is, is it, you know, true understanding or not? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, this is such a good question. Um, and it's something, it's a question that, you know, all of science, I think, has struggled with over a long period of time. You know, is it, should we be taking everything down to individual atoms, you know, or is it, is it the fact that can we understand processes that happen at a larger scale? How much do the larger scale processes depend upon the smaller scale even, right? right. Um, and so I think that, because that question remains open, I, I sort of approach it as, I, I really believe that um, every scale of information has enough content to um, explain some parts of behavior or cognition. It may not explain all, but I think the challenge for us as scientists and specifically neuroscientists is to understand where is that map? Where, where's the match between the information that's present in this measurement and what it is that we can explain? We won't be able to explain everything, but we, there is something that we will be able to explain kind of, kind of almost fully. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's where, that's where I feel comfortable working. And I think that that, that means that there is value at every single scale of measurement. There's different kinds of information that's present at every scale of measurement. So we need neuroscientists that are working at all of those scales, right? And we need neuroscientists who are working at all those scales to understand behavior and cognition. But the challenge for each of us is to figure out which pieces of behavior or cognition are accessible at that scale. Okay, okay. That's, yeah, no, that's actually a, 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 a nice perspective as far as that's concerned. So um, I wasn't, yeah, so just to quickly, you know, for, for those of us who obviously are reading all your work, I mean, there's a, just as an example of that in some sense, uh, or, or maybe something that, that kind of came out in my mind, uh, a recent paper, uh, uh, deep neural networks carve the brain into its joints. Um, 
So, so you actually had some really nice results, which you can explain much, much better than I can right now, but basically using deep neural network analysis and finding, uh, you know, of these connectivity uh, matrices in the brain and, and, and finding that uh, within these layers, there's, 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 uh, uh, it informs and, and predicts uh, cognition yeah. in that regard. Um, so if it does that, uh, what is, is it, does it infer that, that the organization uh, in the brain itself, the, the structure of the brain itself, it's, does that inform something about the structure of the brain or the dynamics of the brain? Or is it just simply something that informs behavior? Can you actually more deeply interpret the success of those models as meaning something, implying something about how the brain is organized? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so there is, when you, you use deep neural networks, there are, there are increasingly methods to help you pull out what is it about the deep neural network? What did it actually learn that best predicted these outcomes? And I would say that that um, area is something that's still under development in, in computer science. So um, it's not fully understood how to pull out exactly what the deep neural network is doing all the time um, and why it's making the predictions it's making. But there's increasing progress in that area. So um, you can pull out a little bit of information about how, um, what is it about the way that the brain is organized? For example, it's modular structure that helps you to understand cognition and then how do, how do cognition and behavior kind of clump together into sectors? And then how do these two modular structures combine with one another and, and explain one another? So there's, there is, I think it can inform what we think about the brain organization that supports those behaviors, but I still think there's a lot more to do. I feel like we're just scratching the surface there. Yeah, yeah, no, it's exciting. It's definitely, and I always sense that that uh, you know I get this sense from your work as well that there's, you know, I I I I read it and I feel like there's you're scratching the surface of something profound, and uh, <laughs> I hope so. we'll see. And, and, and actually, I get that feeling. You know, sometimes when you talk just about the brain, I think, oh, this is kind of like everything. You know, it's like I think of mm -hmm. networks, and I think you know this is kind of like. Um, you know, like this, the, you know, basically how, you know, the, the brain, you know, generative models of, of the world. I mean, in some sense, you can generalize that concept to, you know, all of how life evolves and across different timescales and how you're constantly making models of the world and trying to adapt and the world is changing. So anyway, I, I, it's, it's, it's exciting in that regard too. I enjoy just uh, feeling this sense of, of, of something profound over the horizon. <laughs> um, uh, so, so let's talk a, a little bit more about uh, clinical interventions. So, I mean, I, I think that you, you're starting to, and I, and I just was talking to uh, Michael Fox uh, last week about, um, you know, how he, how he looks at, uh, you know, uh, looks at lesions and sees how they're associated with networks. But then, you know, right now the clinical field is very crude in terms of how we can modulate the brain. We just stick something in and stimulate it or not, uh, or else we do, you know, TMS, which at the surface. Um, so how can your methods, uh, let's say you, you know, looking using like, for instance, network control theory, mm -hmm. uh, uh, how could, how could that be used to better to improve uh, clinical interventions? I, mean, I don't even know if that's the best way to phrase the question, but. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, so I think it's a really important question, whether I can answer it is another, <laughs> another question altogether, but. I think, so um, certainly the application of network science to neuroimaging data 
typically focuses on characterizing what kinds of networks are in the brain and how those networks might differ across development or between different groups, um, healthy and diseased or in late aging or et cetera, right? Um, but I think that that sort of description begs the question of, well, but how does, how would we intervene knowing that the network looks like that? And that question of how do you intervene knowing the network looks like that is the question that network control theory asks. And yeah. so network control theory is an area in systems engineering that's been developed to understand how to control the flow of um, electric current in the power grid um, or to control robotic systems. So it's typically not used in biological systems. Um, but more recently, I think a lot of biologists are realizing that this is, this is exactly the question we want to answer. Yeah. Um, and certainly for us, people who are interested in clinical interventions, it is exactly that question. So in network control theory, the idea is uh, knowing the network organization, where should you inject energy or a signal or more information into the network um, to affect a specific change or drive a specific change in brain state. And it takes two pieces, the, the theory takes two pieces. It takes the architecture of the network, which is specific to each person, right? So when we're thinking about interventions, we can think about personalized interventions given that person's network. And the second piece that it has is the dynamics that happen on the network. So how does activity actually flow on that network? And if you have those two pieces of information, then you can write down exactly how a, a new piece of uh, current or a new piece of information can change the whole state of the brain and the whole sort of dynamical repertoire of the brain. Yeah. So, um, we have one paper now, two papers now, where we've looked at um, brain stimulation in the context of medically refractory epilepsy and have used network control theory to say, um, how, what state would we predict the brain to move to after stimulation and how good is our prediction? And the answer is better than chance, which is great. There's still a lot of variants that we have left unexplained, so there's more to do here, um, but it definitely demonstrates that the, the theory can explain how stimulation works in the network system, which is what the brain is. Um, where do we go from here? I think that uh, bringing this into using transcranial magnetic stimulation and then really thinking more and more about personalization will be important. That's, yeah, and actually, right, having better tools for stimulating very specifically and knowing you know, what you're doing in general. Um, yeah, no, I, and I think actually, right, we need this because right now we're just, I think that the theory, I mean, and in some sense, you're, you're ahead of the tools in that regard because um, right now it's, it, the, the, the stimulation tools are somewhat crude, but, but those might become very rapidly more advanced uh, as far yeah. as that's concerned. Or, I mean, there's also the question of um, uh, pharmacological manipulation or, or you know, the, the use of drugs instead. So we also have uh, a study that we're working on and one that's about to be published where we're using network control theory to understand how drugs change the control landscape of what states are more accessible and of the brain and which states are less accessible for the brain. So it can also help us to understand the efficacy of drugs, I think. And again, I think we have the potential to um, ask those questions at the personal level. Is, is this drug efficacious for this person given their structural connectivity? Um, so yeah, I think it has, I think we can go even beyond stimulation while we're waiting for STEM to be um, a technology that's that's more refined. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine, right. I mean, like, you know, a very, very crude way of looking at networks is, you know, like even with, um, you know, uh, uh, 
you know, drinking coffee, for instance. I mean, you, you kind of upregulate everything, but in some sense you increase cognitive control a little bit in that regard. So it's, it, it's upregulates, but then it, 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 uh, but it, you can imagine having more specific uh, pharmacological interventions as well. But sort of backing up a little bit, um, uh, and this is sort of a question that, I, that I've, so, well, two questions I wanna ask in, in sort of sequence. So if you could have, so sort of theoretical questions of if you could have the perfect intervention uh, uh, what would that be uh, as far as that's concerned? I mean, if, you know, not only the, uh, uh, you know, what would you like to measure, but, but if, you know, a perfect intervention would be, would be that something at the neuronal level, would something at the module level, something uh, mm. cortical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right. How, how... We're gonna go quantum here, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't know, I feel like, huh. I think there's clear evidence that the large scale of brain regions um, can offer a lot of very powerful explanations for behavior. So I'd be happy with an intervention at the regional level. I don't think I need one at the neuronal level. And I guess what I would wish is a, a case where the, the actual set of the constellation of regions that could be intervened upon could be arbitrary, arbitrarily defined. Okay. So it's not just one, not just two, not only on the lateral surface, but we could actually get into the subcortical structures, you know, um, yeah. but non-invasively. Okay, okay. That feels, that feels like an impossible ask, but. Right, but, but who knows? One, one never knows exactly what's, what's potentially over the horizon. It seems like it's accelerating pretty rapidly, obviously with the brain initiative and things like that, who knows? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, so along the lines of the brain, I mean, this, this is actually a question that comes up in the brain initiative. Of, um, just to flip it around purely to, to, to challenge the modeling, um, if you, if we did have every measure of the brain, let's say we could measure everything perfectly, what would be your, where would you start in trying to make sense of that? Um, how would you, what would be your thought process and what sort of models would you try to begin to apply? That's, you know, that makes me think a lot about the work in C. elegans, um, yeah. where the full connectome is already known. Uh, at the cellular level, and and many uh, people who work in C. elegans are, you know, freely admit that we still have very little understanding about how that system really works. So even if we had, you know, super high resolution information from the brain about connectivity, I think it will never be it will never be a replacement for or enough um, to explain the the function or the dynamics. So we're going to need really full descriptions of the dynamics as well. Um, and behavior. And I think the places that are, are trickier is that the people who, even myself even, I will count myself among them, trying to build sophisticated models of the brain often um, treat behavior in a pretty simplistic way. Like we, we me, uh, I'll look at reaction time as like the, the one measure that I'm interested in when, when cognition and behavior is just so complicated. And I think that we need, we as a field need to be able to bring the same sophistication of our models to the brain as we do to behavior and, and vice versa. And then somehow we need to not get lost in that complexity. You know, if we're really tackling both of these, trying to acknowledge the complexity that's in both dimensions, brain and behavior, then we could end up with just a huge mess in the middle. Um, yeah. And so I guess, how do you get around that? Um, I think, you know, thinking about very carefully controlled experiments, but these are not experiments, these are sort of modeling experiments, right? Where you change one single parameter, you build up from a one parameter model to a two parameter model, test it, validate it, and then, and then move forward. I think it takes some careful thinking 
um, about how that interdigitation needs to happen. And yeah. I, would, I don't have the answers right now. Yeah, no, I'm, I, you know, no one does. I, but yeah, definitely interested in your in your insights or feelings of, as, as far as that's concerned. Because it seems that, so um, just related to that in some sense, and this is sort of, you know, my my answer to usually to people who want to measure everything mm. is, is the, the idea of, uh, you know, back in the 1800s when people were cataloging the variety of nature. And then along came obviously Darwin, who, who, who sort of had this insight of, of natural selection to sort of kind of explain it, uh, you know, a deep principle that sort of explains the variety in, in a way that, you know, adds to understanding. And I'm still thinking that, you know, we don't need to measure necessarily everything but I still think we're looking for that uh, that equivalent of natural selection uh, mm, yeah. to, in, in the brain. Um, yes. uh, we don't; it's not there yet. <laughs> no, yeah, I completely agree, and that's why I think simple models, whether they're mathematical or conceptual, is they're really important, and developing them is is really important. And I and I think that that the value of models is not as broad or as deep as it could be in the field, um, and perhaps that's because it's not always evident that it, models are practically useful immediately. They have long-term efficacy and utility, um, but short-term, it may be more important to you know, take an image of a person's brain and make a prediction about whether or not they're going to re um, respond to this medication. Uh, but prediction is definitely not understanding, right? Um, and to build that understanding takes a lot more time and there needs to be a lot more work um, in building, trying to get at those simple fundamental theories. It's just, yeah, it's not as, um, if we take, if we take science as really focusing on short-term goals, modeling in theory won't, will never be developed. Yeah. Yeah. And if we take science as focusing on, on the long-term goals, then we have time and space to do that. And I think in the current funding model too, of, and the careers of the students who are working on these problems, you know, everything has focused on very yeah. short goals. And so I think that's a challenge for the, the sort of global progress of science. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. I, I, I'm, I, I feel a little bit lucky being at, uh, at the NIH where we have sort yeah. of a steady source of funding. You are lucky. <laughs> <laughs> And it, it, it's nice not to have to, to worry about that. And you can think in terms of more long-term yeah. uh, goals. I, I worry also that the, right, the entire field of, of neuroscience in some sense, or even any sort of field, like you said, is sort of uh, topically and, and, and temporally fragmented to, towards these so, short-term goals without people, you know, no one's going to get a grant funded if they say, hey, what, you know, we want to sort of think broadly about this problem. And, you know, you have to have immediate deliverables and, and that sort of thing. Yeah, so. yeah. So yeah, fundamentally, I think that the, the funding structure should change. I mean, maybe we should have something like the intramural program and the extramural program where you, where you sort of, you know, just support people and, yeah. and trust that certain people will be judged and, 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 and go ahead depending on, you know, over time. So. Yeah, I mean, that's a little bit um, what uh, Abraham Flexner tried to do in the 1900s when he developed the Institute for Advanced Studies, which was a place where people could go to not do what he called sort of utilitarian work, right? It's, it's to have a curiosity that just follows whatever it is that you're interested in, even if there are no practical outcomes at any envisionable point in the future. Yes. Um, yeah, I think that's important. And there aren't enough places to do that, I think. Yeah, I, I completely agree. I completely agree. And, and, and certain things would never have been discovered without sort of that, that freedom in some sense to, to explore uh, and make connections because a lot of it depends on 
that exploration yeah. uh, in that regard. I mean, on a far extreme, I, I have many colleagues who are in industry, for instance, and where it's even more rigid, where you actually are, you know, working on product development and, and you're very, you're very limited. And, and yes, they have, they make products and, they, and, and it's great, but there's a lot of lost opportunity, I yeah. think, in that regard. Thanks. Okay, one last question before we go into the other part of our podcast. So, so the message, obviously, that 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 message that clearly comes through in your in your talks and uh, and in your papers is that is that met network models in general, um, and and I think that, that you can expand that a little bit to, is a is a really powerful and comprehensive way of sort of understanding almost almost everything. I mean, I, I get the sense, you know, the more I read your papers and the more I read about networks in general, it's sort of like you think, you know everything, literally everything can be understood in, in this regard. Um, <laughs> and, and then I thought, well, maybe I'm, maybe I'm being naive a little bit because, uh, um, but at the same time is, uh, do you think, what are like the limits of thinking about things in that construct? Um, yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. So um, I think that I'll give one example where I feel like networks are not particularly useful. And that's in a place where the system is certainly is a continuum and not composed of components and their interactions. So I think about ocean currents around the, the earth as a, this is, this is a huge body of water. It's a continuum, it's a volume um, and understanding ocean currents is probably better done by, by grasping that con continuity, the continuum nature of the system, rather than subdividing it into pieces and under, trying to understand interactions. It's not kind of a piece interaction sort of system. So I think there are systems that don't fit this model particularly well. But you're right that as we think about like molecules or brains or social networks or ideas, it does feel like they're all systems that can be decomposed into pieces and where the interactions seem to be important. Um, yeah. I think that I think that network science, yeah, it's true. You, you want to say you want to be careful not to take a technique off the shelf and just randomly slap it onto the problem in front of you. Um, but I think that sort of as I was as we were talking about earlier in the podcast, network science is a really nice middle ground um, from between the reductionistic standpoint of pieces and a full model, which is the exact same thing that you're studying, um, that doesn't really necessarily give you any insight. So because it's constructionist in some way, it's a helpful generic approach to problems. Uh, and so I think that that's, that is true. And that's why it, you see it useful in many places. That doesn't mean there aren't challenges. So some of the challenges are, am I building the right kind of network for my system? Um, and am I using that network in a way that is is matching the, the, the pieces with the question, right? So there's always a question of, of mapping the model and the, and the scientific inquiry. So those are challenging and they have to be done differently for each system, right? And so you wanna, make, you wanna remain true to the system while using a conceptual approach that may be shared across systems. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually, that's a, that's a really interesting insight as far as the, the right, there's a lot of, things that are sort of continuums that, uh, I mean, you can imagine, yeah, it all depends on, on, on right, what, what's the most effective way of describing the dynamics. I mean, there's complex systems and, and, and all kinds of, yeah. Well, that's, yeah, so this is, that, that, was, a, that was a great answer, thank you. Um, so, so uh, okay, so now we'll move into um, 
The other part of our podcast is just talking about bias in science as well. And, and uh, you just finished writing a few papers, I mean, a, a few years ago, but also recently as well, um, on, on uh, gender and race bias in science. And so do you want to talk a little bit about what you found? Yeah. Sorry. Yeah, absolutely. So this is work that was led by Jordan Dworkin, who was at the time a graduate student in biostatistics at Penn. Um, and he came to me one day and he showed me some data and he's like, I, I think that there's a there's a bias in the way that we are citing um, women in this case. So he was just focusing on gender. And so there's a bias, he said, there's a bias against how, in how we're citing women in neuroscience. And, and so he showed me some of the data and I admitted that that's what it looked like. Um, but I was, I guess, uh, a little bit hesitant because that's a big claim. Um, and so he, uh, he kept, but he didn't stop. He like, kept uh, doing more data analysis, kept coming back to me, you know, every few months, and like, here's the new data. What do you think? Um, and so eventually I was like, you know, this is really real. I think this is something that we should all know about. Um, and then maybe we can do something about it. And in fact, I asked him to um, specifically look at my reference lists in my, all of the papers that I've written and determine whether I have shown a bias in undersighting women and oversighting men. And the answer is yes. Um, so <laughs> that was, um, you know, a very humbling realization that this is something that any of us um, can show. So that's just sort of the backstory, but what we found. So what he did is that he took all of the papers that have been written from 1995 to um, 2018 and uh, in five top neuroscience journals. So Nature Neuroscience, NeuroImage, Brain, Journal of Neuroscience, and NeuroImage. And um, he took all of those papers and he looked at all of the reference lists and we pulled out the first and last authors. Those are the ones that simplified our analysis a little bit. And those are often the ones who are the sort of intellectual leaders of the paper. Um, in our fields of neuroscience, typically the first author is the student and typically the last author is the, the senior author or PI of the lab. And so then what we did is that we um, predicted whether each author was a woman or a man. Um, and we did that by using large databases from the Social Security Administration and also from a gender API that takes names from 177 different countries. And um, so for each name, you can predict with some probability whether that typically is given to a woman or typically is given to a man. Um, and I will acknowledge that this is a binary assignment, which is not well accommodating to non-binary people, intersex people, or transgender people. And that's a limitation we're trying to address in future work. But after um, assigning with prob probabilistically uh, the gender of the authors, then we can just say, are these the papers that are written by you know, a first author woman and a, and a last author woman being cited in a way that's consistent with how many papers there are there, there are in these top five journals in the literature in the same time period. If there's, you will naturally see that you know, most of the papers that are being written have a man in the first and last author positions just because there are more men in the field. Um, and so typically all reference lists will have more men than women. But what we wanted to know was given that already asymmetry in how many people are in the field and how many papers are being written, are they being cited according to that asymmetry or are they being cited like even in an even more biased manner? so that the number of citations that a paper gets as a woman in the first and last author position is much less than you would expect um, given the number of papers that are out there. Yeah. So that's what we found, okay. um, that it's very consistently being undercited and the undercitation is growing with time, which is very concerning. The second paper just does the same thing with race and ethnicity. And we find that authors of color are being 
um, significantly undersighted, and that's also increasing with time. So suggesting that we as a field should think about what we can do about it. Yeah, so I, I, so I had a number of questions that come from that. Um, so the first question is just the last point you brought up is, is growing in time. It seems that there must have been a time when the bias was extreme though, uh, when, when it was completely, well, maybe not. Maybe, maybe uh, well, the bias was sort of a direct proportion to uh, the, the relative populations of people in science. But um, you, you'd think that at some point it, it was good, it maybe got better, and then now it's growing in time. But uh, yeah. Yeah, we, d we, we don't know. I mean, we don't go back behind 1995. Um, it's harder to get the data for that, for those papers. But definitely what we find is that there was, there was less imbalance earlier. Um, and then, and, and what tends to happen is that over the last sort of 10 years, there's been a, a significant increase. Um, and that, that jump is particularly true according to authors of, uh, of color. I think what's happening is that, and we have some evidence to suggest that um, the growing diversity of people in the field is not moving into the citations. So yeah. the, the field is changing right. in its demographics, but our citation allotments are not changing. And so that's widening the gap. Interesting, interesting. And do you think that, um, right, when one hopes you know, optimistically that it's just a time lag and, then, and that people will become more senior who are, you know, that this, it, will, it will gravitate towards the seniority positions and, and, the, and the first author positions. But, but it's interesting though, um, uh, you know, it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a really interesting problem because, I mean, even for yourself and, and myself, it's like we never think of ourselves, you know, we just sort of, you know, I, I, you know I, when, I, when I was reading that, I thought, well, what do I do when I select papers? I just sort of look at the paper. I don't even necessarily check the authors. I just sort of, oh, there's the paper and there's, you know, so it's like, do I have that bias or is it, is it, a, is it an individual bias or is it a bias in the field itself that's a more systemic problem rather than, you know, and in, you know, the scientists like to think that they're not biased. And, and even like, for instance, when I'm on many committees, you know, I'm on, you know, on these committees, you know, trying to come up with planning meetings and coming up with speakers. And, 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 and when we try to make people aware of let, let's try to, uh, you know, include uh, a certain fraction of, of uh, females and, and, uh, you know, you'll always get certain people or some people that will just say, no, why, why should we do that? Because all we care, all that matters is just, you know, the topic. Mm -hmm. And, and so how do you, so, yeah, so, so is, so, so maybe the, the question speaks to what is the nature of the problem? If nobody really thinks that they're being biased, I guess that's the idea of bias in some yeah. sense. Yeah, <laughs> it's, exactly. it's a blind spot. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think how do you solve blind it? Spot. And I guess, and I guess what's interesting is that, yes, as scientists, we're sort of trained that we're supposed to be these hyper objective people, right? Um, but I think that if we as scientists look at the data of bias as a scientist with our scientific mind, then we would recognize, oh, actually, um, we're all, humanity has lots of um, implicit biases. And so yeah. we are, and we're still human. <laughs> yep. We're not these superhuman scientists who don't have any um, biases. We have the, the, the imperfections that everybody else has. And we recognize those imperfections in simple things like pipetting. Like we can pipette inaccurately, right? And we can cite in a biased way. The first one is an imperfection in motor movement. The second one, second one is an imperfection in cognitive processes. There's not really any difference. The fact is that we're human and we have imperfections. And that's been, I mean, that's been noticed for 
you know, hundreds and hundreds of years um, that we are, that we are, we tend to, we have imperfect senses and, um, and we have imperfect perceptions and we have imperfect cognitive processes. I think the data now is just, hasn't, scientists, need to look at the data about bias and as a scientist and be, and just recognize, okay, the data is there. We probably have it. And when I asked Jordan to check my citations, I thought I probably have it too. Um, and, and I did. And, yeah. and I'm also a person who cares a lot about diversity and inclusion. And, but I had just never thought about this. Now that I know about it, I can do something about it, but it's just an indication that even people who have this as a, as a central core goal of their life can be blind. Yeah, yeah, um, and it, but it, it still does, like, it, it actually it, it even brings up another question of how we even make citations in general. I mean, it's sort of like an imperfection in many ways. I mean, imperfection even covering the topic correctly, and, you know, there's no way we can know all the possible papers, and so it sort of speaks to the community. It speaks to, like, oh, you know, we saw that person give a talk. We're kind of aware of the paper or something coming up in Twitter, you know, yeah. whatever, um, and so it's we're, we're, we have this very sparse network in some sense of, of gathering information. And so the bias sort of comes through further there. Yeah, um, yeah so it's a, it's a tricky problem because I don't think anyone in science is, is uh, and you're right, we are all, we're all biased, um, but I don't think that it's sort of like no one would admit to it. And, and, and so it's, and you've come up with sort of potential tools uh, for, or you're associated with people developing tools. Uh, and, and one of the tools is to be more transparent, like, you know, in the citations, listing or you know, just giving that information as far yeah. as race uh, or ethnicity or yeah. Or sex. yeah so at the end of our papers and, and a couple other lots of other labs are doing this too is to just include a citation diversity statement right next to the acknowledgments that says you know we recognize that this is uh this happens in science and we give all the citations of where it's been shown to happen and then we want to you know think carefully about our references, just the way, the same way that we think carefully about the colors we use in our figures, right? We yeah. are so detail oriented in every section of the paper, except the references. Yeah. Um, and so now I want to, we want to say, let's look at the references. Like let's, let's just determine whether we're accurately canvassing the field and let's acknowledge that we probably aren't given some of our imperfections as humans. And um, so we, what we usually do is that we run a piece of code that checks the numbers. And if we're way off baseline for the field that we're in for that particular paper, then we go back to the literature and say, what, what have we missed? Um, we've likely missed a lot of work and the answer is often the case. Um, yeah. And particularly we've missed a lot of work from younger uh, faculty and their students. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. And it all depends on, you know, right, what our, what our world is and what we're you know, just increasing that awareness, I think would go a long way. It also seems that, you know, I always think in terms of, you know, what's the, you know, other ways of sort of addressing the systemic sort of problem. And it seems that there, there uh, you know, it seems that there should be more systems set up where that support women scientists in, in many different ways. And so, um, why does this proportion fall off over time? Is it is it just simply, uh, you know, uh, a bias, or is it simply that that women scientists feel like like it's they're not supported in, in the same way that 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 men have freedom to sort of pursue these sort of things, or maybe there's old, you know, uh, models of, of 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 that still in play. You know, it'd be nice to try to uh, solve this problem at the deepest possible level to sort of you know yeah. to yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I think that there's I think there's two ways of doing that. So definitely 
supporting and encouraging minority scholars, either along the dimension of gender or race and ethnicity or LGBTQ plus or ability and disability, whatever the dimension is, right? We need to encourage uh, those minority scholars, but our results, at least from this line of work, suggest that even with an increasingly diverse community, we're not engaging with their work. As, and so that's, it's not that they're not there, it's that they're there and we're not engaging with what it is that they're doing. Yeah. Um, so I feel like there's, I think this is, I think we need to separate the problems, the problems of support and the problems of our engagement. And I guess along the lines of engagement, there are two, um, one journal and then one press that are, are taking some kind of broader actions. So, so Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience now, part of its editorial policy um, brings this up and says, and offers a tool that you can use on your papers to check you know, how you're doing um, in comparison to the stats of Journal of Cognitive Neuroscience alone. So that you just know for that specific field, how are you doing? And then um, Cell Press, which publishes 50 plus journals um, across the biological sciences has just created a new, um, inclusion and diversity statement. You know how, and when you, well, I don't know how many of our listeners know, but when you submit a paper to some of these journals, you need to fill out a statistics form and an editorial form. And here's another form that you fill out, which is called the inclusion and diversity statement. And it's an opportunity to state ways in which you are supporting um, diversity and inclusion and equity in the way in which science is done. And uh, one of the boxes there is, you know, have you aligned your references with kind of the proportions in the field? So yeah. I think there are, there are lots of opportunities. There are a lot of people are being creative about coming up with potential solutions. And then the question will be figuring out which of them are the most effective. Yeah. Yeah, that's actually, that's, I mean, it seems that, right. I mean, the more I think about it, the more, uh, and I think this is all, this is really good. And I think it's, it, it will just build momentum. And I think it's actually sort of, you know, in some strange way, it's being hi it highlighted in some sense. Uh, in, so, in some ways, scientists have their own bubbles of, 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 influence and people who that influence them and, and work that influences them and sort of how to tweak how to tweak our 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 literature and how to tweak our the information that comes at us that we are we're more aware of this just like you know just like a much bigger problem in social media where you have people with their own filter bubbles right. and uh and yeah. how, how would one tweak that to to yeah. to diversify that yeah so, yeah i mean maybe thinking about the other thing i guess is you had mentioned i think the potential for other efforts like educational efforts. And I was also thinking about even for H OHBM, it's possible that having educational programs that are focused on um, showing the work of, of minority scholars so that more of the community knows about that work, particularly of the, young, the younger ones, because um, that is where many of them are at this stage. Yeah, yeah. That could be a useful approach. Yeah, I think so. I think actually I'll, you know, to the extent that uh, I can bring it up, I'll, I'll bring it up. And, and... <laughs> And I think you're right. I think that you know the key is to get get young people. I mean, you know, when I when I decided to go into science, I think I was in, in high school, and uh, you know, having people you know encouraging you and influencing you and giving you opportunities, uh, uh, even at the high school level, would be would be useful. But, uh, yeah. And all the way through. So, and at least we're at this first stage of just trying to increase awareness. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. So I think that's. So I, I really I, I really think that the work you're doing in that regard is is great and i think yeah putting some rigor to this uh i think is is powerful as well um not only for making people aware but also coming up with solutions all right well well thanks for that discussion just uh, just to conclude 
this podcast and, and thanks for spending the time with us. Um, so, so your work and, and so not only your work, but sort of your, your trajectory of your career has been really inspiring. And, you know, what, what would you like, what sort of principles, I guess, would you like to convey to young scientists in the field uh, to help them in their choice of, you know, the questions and the strategies for how they go about their research? Yeah, I think I've thought about this a lot. Um, it's a common question, I guess. And I think I would just say to them to follow your curiosity um, and to also find an environment in which your personal curiosity is valued and allowed to grow. So I think that students and, and people in general are happiest and most productive when they're following their passions. So I think it's important just to listen to yourself and figure out what your passions are and then surround yourself with people who share and respect those passions. And recognize that science needs each of us. It needs very diverse interests. It needs very diverse approaches and it needs freedom to pursue those interests and approaches. Um, and I think, you know, we had talked about Abraham Flexner earlier in the podcast and I think he, he has this writes this one passage that I love and that I quote to people often. He says, the real enemy of the human race is not the fearless and irresponsible thinker, be he right or wrong. The real enemy is the man who tries to hold the human spirit so that it will not dare spread its wings. And I think you want to be the person who wants to fly and you want to be the person who will find the environment that will let you fly. And I guess for all of the rest of us, um, we need to make the environment that is it, where anyone can come and fly. And that's our responsibility. So that's what I'd say. Well, great, that's, that's really useful. And I think that a, a lot of people, I think need to be told that sort of thing. I think I agree with you hundred percent that uh, when people come in my lab, they, they wanna know what they should do. And I sort of like, what are you interested in? You know, let's yeah. try to figure something out that's, and I think I, I totally agree that that mindset uh, can help a lot of people in many ways. Well, thank you very much. And uh, uh, this has been a great, discussion. I've, I've learned a lot and I've gotten a lot of uh, deeper perspectives of, of, of not only your work, but of, of the field in general. So okay. uh, it's been a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you.